Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, Relative Race is back on BYU TV. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to Dan Debenham, the host of the reality show, about this sixth season and what we can expect from it. Plus, I'll talk to a man who made a remarkable discovery about his family of nine children. He and his siblings all discovered through DNA a shocking story. You're going to want to hear about the book he's written about the experience. That's all this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And you have found us. It is America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And this episode is brought to you by BYU TV's Relative Race, Sunday nights at 8 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Pacific time. And the new season is underway. In fact, later on in the show, in about 10 minutes, we're going to talk to Dan Debenham. He is the host of the show. It's the new season, and he'll give you the rundown on what's happening, what's new, where they're going, and all kinds of great stuff. Then later in the show, we're going to talk to Steve Anderson. You may remember him from episode 100, where he talked about the discovery of the fact that he, among his nine siblings, were not fathered by their dad. In fact, they were fathered by many different people. And now Steve has written a book about it. We'll tell you the full story and tell you where you can get the book coming up later on in the show. Right now, let's head out to Boston, where my good friend David Allen Lambert is standing by. He is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. And uh, David's got our family histoire news for you today. David, how are you? Great to have you back. Always a pleasure to be on the show. And uh, as we approach the next hundred episodes, this is great. (laughs) That's true. Well, I'll tell you, with the discovery of how we can use DNA in genealogy, it's been remarkable. But for family members, the discovery of DNA has brought veterans home. And I mean specifically, in this case, Pearl Harbor, at least a few a year, if not more, I've had news stories on it. Yet again, another Pearl Harbor veteran, an 18-year-old who died aboard the USS West Virginia, who laid in an unidentified grave for 78 years, is now home in New Jersey. And the great thing about the story about Harold Costell is that he has siblings alive, but also his buddy that joined the U.S. Navy in 1940 was there to give remarks and be at his friend's funeral. Wow. They're both in their 90s now. Exactly. And in fact, in this case, I mean, Harold would have been 96. So I would imagine that his buddy, Mr. Snyder, he is probably the same age. Yeah. They joined in 1940. I wonder if at some point we're going to start to identify soldiers from earlier wars, right? World War One, maybe the Spanish-American War, the Civil War. Is that possible? Well, I would imagine so. I mean, the thing that I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, the federal government basically does not consider anything beyond World War II a concern. So, I mean, the unknown soldier in World War I who lies at the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington should be able to be identified, shouldn't he? 
You would think so. You know, speaking of soldiers, um, the father of our country, George Washington, of course, is well known for his role in helping win the Revolutionary War. (laughs) But he may have actually started another one, firing the first shot that may have started the French and Indian War. Right. That's pretty heavy. It is. And it looks like it may have been a misinterpretation because the French looked like they were just wanting to give him some paperwork. And, well, he fired the first shot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great story. You've really got to read this, uh, and it is linked to from ExtremeGenes.com. So my next story has to do with Mike Rodriguez, who is an x-ray technician who likes to scour flea markets for photographs. He bought an album for $8, really old 19th century photos, all identified. Even pictures down to the latter part of the 20th century with family members gathering in front of the old homestead in 1896. So it really kind of made him curious, why would someone give up this history? So he started to do some research and showed it to the last surviving son of the person who owned the album. Oh, wow. He connected them. It's great. Isn't that fun? So the album's going back home. This was found in San Antonio, Texas, and Mm -hmm. the album's from Ohio, and nobody knows how it got down to San Antonio. You know, I'll tell you, eBay is an amazing thing for reconnecting and bringing things back. My own historical society, we just purchased for a little under $100 an account book from 1805, but it has countless people in it, but The person also included their family record of when all their kids were born, when they were born, when they were married, all written in the back of this account book. Wow. Yeah, so it was the best hundred dollars we spent, and now it's a matter of how did that end up in Indiana? <laughs> so <laughs> right? we've got the same mystery in sure. our place. Yeah, you know, one of the things about mysteries, and especially with houses, you never know what's going to be found when a house is sold or some wall is torn down. But in the next story on ExtremeGenes.com is regarding your own house history. For me, I was an eleven-year-old finding bottles in my backyard. I went to our local historical society to find out who lived there, why did they put them there and how old my house was. And that led me into my history career at an early age. Wow. But even if your house is not 100 years old, have you ever researched the land fish? I mean, this is like amazing, like where you live. Have you gone back and said before there was a house who may have been on that property or owned it back 100 years before or so? I do know because it was just basically used as farmland. We built our house that we're currently in, and the house I grew up in, my parents built. So I really haven't lived in an old house, but I did have a buddy in Connecticut when I was growing up, and we found a packet of Indian head pennies buried in his backyard. That's amazing. That was so fun. Well, now, was that with a metal detector or just by pure luck by digging holes? Pure randomly? luck. Pure <laughs> luck. They just, just stumbled on it. That's great. Well, people find things all the time, and sometimes they're given to a paleogeneticist at University of California. It's usually hair of victims or hair of possible serial killers. Dr. Ed Green, who is out in Santa Cruz, California, receives these packages from law enforcement all the time, and he's helping identify who these people are but using hair but not with the root, which is a real revolutionary thing because for the longest time we've already heard that hair's no use unless you have the root of it. He's finding that's not the case. Wow. He actually helped in 2010 with the sequencing of the entire Neanderthal genome from shards of bone that were 38,000 years old. That's a smart guy. 
All right, David. Thanks so much. Talk to you again later in the show as we do our Ask Us Anything segment. That season has arrived once again. Relative race on BYU TV. And the host is here with me in studio today, Dan Debenham. How are you, Dan? Good to see you. I'm good. Did you say Radio Roots Sleuth? That is me. That wow. is my I'm yes. impressed. Say that five times real fast. That's, <laughs> that's tough. I've had a lot of practice. That's that's impressive. 300 previous episodes. Now, I love so it. You know how I that goes. It. We've only had 60 episodes of Relative Race <laughs> with the most recent 10 episodes that just got underway. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited about this because in uh, season six, we got a whole new group of teams. Let's explain the show to people who are not familiar with it, because I know anybody who follows Extreme Genes, they've probably heard of it, but maybe don't know how it works. And, and you created this. It's a great point. Yeah, we did. We, uh, we were asked to create a show that could demonstrate in a very compelling dramatic, wonderfully entertaining manner what DNA could do for someone who is trying to find family. And so our show is 10 episodes featuring 10 days of racing. We choose four teams, four couples. We fly them out to an undisclosed location. We take away all of their technology, everything that, oh, that yeah, smart. I'm shaking just thinking of it. How could it be? It's true. Smartphones, Bluetooth, everything's gone. We give them old-fashioned flip phones and paper maps. We give them identical cars, and then we provide them with clues every day. And as they follow those clues... They arrive in a different city every day and ultimately on someone's doorstep. When they arrive at that doorstep, their clock stops. Now, they've been timed from the time they got their first text in the morning to the moment when they arrived on that doorstep. After the clock stops, the door opens up. They look up at somebody in the door, a complete stranger, and say, are you my relative? Typically, as a result of our research, that person in the door says, I am, and then the obvious follow-up, well, how are we related? And that person on the doorstep is typically saying, I'm related to you, Scott, and I'm your brother, or I'm your father, or I'm your mother. And it's really beautiful. It's amazing. It's interesting. It's fun. It's compelling. It's dramatic. It's humorous. It's competitive. It sometimes. is competitive. Some of yeah, these teams, absolutely. you know, I think they start out sometimes thinking, oh, I can win $50,000. It's a good point. We haven't it, even it, gotten to that yeah. point yet, but they're all about beating the other team. And then suddenly they're finding out, oh, no, 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 this, that isn't what this is about. And that's what you're going to find in this most recent season that started uh, just last week. You're going to find the teams coming together in a way that we have never seen before. So every single night, we wind up in a video conference call, and the host of the show, which is me in this case, has all four of the teams in different locations streaming video back to my computer. They can all see each other, and they can all see me, and I can see all of them. And you will find, as every episode continues over the next nine weeks, you're going to see that they are more and more supporting each other in various ways. And you'll see it in a very real visual manner during those video conference calls every night, which is at the end of every episode. Each day, everyone has a different allotted time because they're all going to different cities. But if you 
go over your allotted time the most, you receive a strike, three strikes, and you're out of the race. But if right. you make it all the way to day 10 and then finish in first place on day 10, you pick up $50,000. And so you would think there's this great competition, but as you noted, more and more, they are actually rooting for each other because they're all looking for family and they're affected by others finding key members of their family each and every day. And, and it is amazing. I think these folks represent a lot of people that we all run into in our lives, right? And as genealogists or family history researchers, how many of us have helped friends find their birth parents or find a, a parent's birth parents or connect to a line or even go through the travesty of, of finding that a parent wasn't your parent and, and finding out the truth. I mean, there's so much drama in everyday life. And I think all of these different couples, these teams represent this same thing that, that all of us deal with uh, on a regular basis. It is dramatic. It is fun, but it's all life-changing. Agreed completely. Every season you've done has changed lives. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, we are now for the first time going back over the past six seasons, and we're revisiting key couples throughout the past six seasons to see how their lives have changed since they were on the show. Wow. What a great idea. Great follow-up. So now you're in season six. What is new in this season that you've never done before? I can tell you that for the first time, all four of our teams, all four of our teams are searching for parents, for birth parents. That's oh, never wow. happened before. No, uh -uh. Their stories, their backstories, the, their purpose for being on the show has varied over the past seasons. But this time, for the first time, at least one member of each team is looking for parents. And so it's really going to be interesting to see if we're able to find them, if they're able to discover them. Team Green is Deshay and Chris, and they're from Louisiana. Team Blue this year is Paul and Anitra. I got to tell you, he is hilarious. He's a psychologist. And he plays mind games with his wife, and, it, and she ain't having none of that. She gets on him. Uh, they're from North Carolina. Team Red, Raymond and Nicole, they're from Maryland. And then Team Black, J.D. and Jen, are from Utah. And so it, it's really going to be interesting to watch these teams. They're a little older than past seasons, but their stories are so compelling. So do you think the birth parents theme, basically, with this show has to do with why these people are so supportive of one another? Because I, every person I've ever dealt with and helping them with DNA analysis and connecting with their birth families, often they'll start out saying, oh, this is impossible. We can never do it. And then I'll say, oh, no, it's entirely possible. We can do it in an hour. Yeah. You know, and they're going, oh, no, no, no. Sometimes I've had people say, oh, and it's not going to really make a big difference in my life. My family's my family, which they are. Yep. But when they get that information, when they make that connection, it's inevitable that they'll admit, yes, this is life changing. And part of it is this is a way they psychologically protect themselves against disappointment. Sure. Uh, you know, that that harkens me back to I think it was season three when we had Michael and Dylan, a father and son team from North Carolina. Michael was in his late 40s. He was adopted at birth. Both of his adopted parents passed away by the time he was a teenager, by the time he was 13 years old. And so when we did our backstory, I think his comment that was used in his backstory is the most telling, almost chilling, but certainly the most revelatory comment we've ever had as this grown man looks into our camera 
And he said his purpose for being on the show as his lips started to tremble in emotion, he said, I just want to know if there's anybody out there that actually loves me. I mean, you think about that. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's all he wanted to know. Is there somebody out there that loves me? And his journey was life-changing. And he's one of the teams that we're going back to revisit. Wow. Uh, but that's what this show is about. Yeah. It's about changing your life forever. So moving forward now, Dan, how does your team put these themes together, these ideas together? Okay, this season we're going to do this. This season we're going to change that. Take us inside your creative team meeting and how that came up. <laughs> We've had people say that should be a reality show behind the scenes at <laughs> LensWorks Productions, creating relative race. Um, we do have a theme each season. It's a loose theme. This season, the theme is on racing. The name of the show is Relative Race, and so our theme is racing. And so we start, as you saw, at Virginia International Raceway, and yours truly is racing down a track, and then they race around the track, and then you'll see what happens as they get to day 10. I'm certainly not going to give that away, but on day 10, I will tell you that there is some intense racing taking place. And yet there's no speeding allowed. Yeah, there's no speed. Well, there there was at Virginia International Raceway, and there (laughs) is on day 10. So that, that actually, if that doesn't pique your interest, you're correct that when they're out trying to find their family, they cannot break any traffic laws. Yeah. In fact, if they do, they'll receive a strike. But on day one and on day 10, yeah, the rules are off because they're not on a public roadway. And so, yeah, we're racing on both those days. And it's <laughs> uh, it's fun. It was fun. Did you notice how Dan avoided the question about how they came up with this stuff? So, Well, every season, it's a challenge. It is driven by what locations can we start and finish at? That even is determined by what is our weather going to be? I mean, mm. we have to th- take in all of these things. And when we cast the four couples, is there something that we think a theme that would be fun for them to tackle and challenge and try to pull from day one to day 10? But again, this season is all about using the word race and uh, using it in a very real manner on day ones and day 10. Okay. Now we got to let everybody know that the time has changed this year. That's a good point. Okay. It is Sunday nights, still Sunday nights. Moved up. Eight o'clock Eastern time, seven o'clock central, six o'clock mountain time and five o'clock Pacific time. I'm not sure why the network has made that change. I'm, I'm sure it's for the best of our viewers and for the show. Well, that's because you've won all these awards. You know, we've been very lucky. So you can watch it on BYU TV. You can follow it on the BYU TV app. You can stream it with BYUtv.org. You can go to RelativeRace.com. I mean, there's so many different places. And, of course, follow it on Hulu and all those places. Basically, if you have electricity and a screen, you should be able to watch this in some way, shape, or form. It's season six of Relative Race with Dan Debenham, the host. I love it. And I'm excited. It's back on on BYU TV. Thanks for coming in, Dan. You bet. Relative Race rolls on. And coming up next, we're going to talk to Steve Anderson. And Steve is the guy that probably came up with the most incredible story we have ever had in the history of Extreme Genes over six years. And I am so pleased to have back on the show again today my good friend Steve Anderson. Now, if you're a longtime listener to Extreme Genes, you may remember back in episode 100, a nice round number, Steve came on and told us his remarkable story. He's a member of a family with nine kids and started to discover that dad 
wasn't dad. Dad wasn't dad to any of them. In fact, there were many different dads to all of them. And uh, what a story it was. And now there's a, a new development in this, and we thought we'd get Steve back on the show to talk about it. How are you, Steve? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you doing? Awesome. It's been a while here. I, I'm thinking we talked yeah. in 2015 for the first time, and uh, yeah. you revealed this story because at, at that point, DNA was becoming kind of a big thing. And I want to give a brief revision of this story because uh, I know a lot of people maybe weren't listening to Extreme Genes back at that time. And, of course, they can go back and find it and hear you tell the whole story because it was just unbelievable then and it's just as unbelievable now. But you had nine kids in the family from Minnesota. That's where you grew up in a farming community. And just give us the brief rundown of this. Sure. We just wanted to find out through DNA who was related to who because of some stories we heard when we were growing up and started to do some research using DNA and thought that we might find one or two of my siblings who were not related to our father. Over the course of doing the research, we found out that none of us, nine children, were related to our dad. And although he had never said a word about it, never told us anything that would give us the idea that he wasn't our dad or who the dads were if we found out. But over the course of about two or three years, the DNA testing on all of the children, we found out that three of them have the same dad. And then another two, myself and my younger brother, had the same dad, but none of them were the dad that, that raised us. And then there were four others in the middle, each fathered by a different father. Right, right. So originally, I remember you were thinking there were nine children, eight different dads, and I think since then you, you've gotten a little more refined with the DNA and you're down to six different dads, but none of them your father. Right. Once we found out who wasn't related to the dad that raised us, then the mission became, okay, who are the real dads? And we started working with Ancestry DNA to see if we could get some matches out of their database. And we were able to locate the fathers of all but two of them, and we know who those two fathers are. So okay. we just have not been able to tap into his descendants. Well, and I remember at the time when you came on, I, I was encouraging you to come on the show, and you were really hesitant about that. Mm -hmm. And then you got on the show, and we were talking about the potential of writing a book. And you've done it, and I'm very excited about this. It's called A Broken Tree, How DNA Exposed a Family's Secrets. And, uh, Steve, this is a great accomplishment, and I'm really excited for you that you've been able to do this. Well, it's been a lot of fun to do it, but it's also been good therapy. It started out as just keeping a lot of journal entries. Um, it was a lot cheaper than going to see a therapist every week for three years. <laughs> right. After about two or three years, I had been reading those and think, uh, you know, this really would make a fascinating book. Talked to a few people about it, and they all kept saying, Steve, you need to write a book. You yep. need to write a book. So I finally sat down and did it. I am so proud of you. And I'm very appreciative, by the way, you mentioned uh, Extreme Genes in there, as you've been on a couple of times about this, because there have always been new developments, and we'd like to keep up with that. So yeah. tell me now, over the years now, we, we started talking about this uh, in 2015. You were concerned about siblings, and you wanted to make sure that they were all ready to handle the information that you and your brother developed as this started. How's everybody doing? How are all the siblings doing with this? Some better than others. I think our generation, the nine of us, are too close to it. 
the nieces and nephews all think this is a great story. And they're not at all upset. They're not at all concerned. In fact, they're quite grateful to know what the real DNA is so that if we have issues, they can be climbing up the right DNA tree and sure. not some other one somewhere. But we've got a couple of siblings that really don't want anything to do with this, don't want to read the book. But the rest of them, they tolerate me doing this and have been interested in finding out what the truth is. Right. And I remember you confronted your mom, who was in her 90s at that time. Did you find yeah. that most of the information she shared with you about the various fathers has, has turned out to be accurate? <laughs> well, we found that about 20 percent of it was accurate. Oh, boy. Now, given she was 90 years old, her mind was really quite sharp, at, even at 90. But it had been half a century or longer since she had had these experiences. So I don't know how much of it was just forgetfulness and how much of it was, you know, you're not going to get the truth from me. (laughs) Well, maybe she thought she could hide it. Of course, in this day and age, it's really hard to hide a secret quite like this one. She learned that. How much longer after you confronted her did she live? She lived another three years. She died at 93. Okay. And how did this affect her relationships with everybody? Well, the people that were close to her, I think, were very careful not to let this drive a wedge between them and her. Some of the kids really didn't want to be a part of her life just because a lot of issues from childhood and through the years. So I think as far as my mom is concerned, it wasn't a dramatic change. I think emotionally inside each one of us, yeah, it was a big deal. I know for me, I was always real close to her. And after this, there was this sense of betrayal, and and it was really hard to talk to her every Sunday night, because every Sunday night I'd call her and Mm -hmm. see how she's doing. And it was kind of like, now I was talking to a little more of a stranger than my dear mother. Yeah, I'm sure that's absolutely true. So have any of your siblings or yourself actually had any contact with one of the birth fathers or their families? Well, all the birth fathers are gone now. Okay. But interesting enough, the last one to know the truth about what we were doing, we were able to make contact with her father's daughter, a half-sister. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and actually, that was kind of an accident, So, but it was a good accident. Well, now, how then, did, wait a minute. Then, how does an accident like that happen, Steve? <laughs> I was calling up people trying to locate a relative of my sister's biological father. And after a couple of phone calls and you go see this person, go talk to this one, I finally got a hold of a, of a woman and was explaining what I was doing. And I said, you know, when I find this woman that is supposed to be this person's daughter, I want to explain to her that her father had another child and it is a half-sister and I'd like to introduce them to each other. And she said, oh, by the way, you're talking about my dad. I am the sister. Oh, wow. And I thought that this was only one more link to finding that sister. Has that worked out well, the relationship? Well, the sister is 72 years old, and then my sister, I believe, was about 70. So, yeah, it turned out pretty good. I think it was good for both my sister and her to find out about this. But I still think at this age, this half-sister is just not sure she wants to pursue this too sure. far. Sure, of course. So they text each other and email each other, but I don't think at this point there's any interest in meeting each other. I see. 
Well, it's just incredible. And once again, if people want to hear Steve tell the entire story at the beginning, it's episode 100 of Extreme Genes. You can find it on iTunes, iHeartRadio, and of course through ExtremeGenes.com. Steve, thanks again for staying in touch and keeping us informed on this most unusual story. Thank you. I enjoyed this very much. And up next, David is back with your questions for Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show. And uh, David, we have an email from Tracy in Pensacola, Florida, and she's asking about letters of administration. She says, guys, I've received the letters of administration from my great-grandfather, and it certainly doesn't tell me much. Is there anything more I should look for? I mean, the lenders administration are great because they usually get you that petition citation decree. So it usually lays out all of the errors. That's more of a formalized document you see in the 19th century, not so much earlier. But it's amazing how many probate files people look at that are just in the record books. And they don't look for the probate docket, the file papers that are rolled up. And that's the thing that you need to look for. Like, give you an example. So if I wrote a will today, which I probably should anyways, I would leave, you know, my wife and to my siblings and obviously to my children. Now, both of my daughters are unmarried. And hopefully I'll live another 50 years or somewhere near that. And by then... If they're married, their surname may change, but in the old days when you did that, you would just have, I leave to my daughter Elizabeth, I leave to my daughter Hannah, to my daughter Mary, and that's it. And if you look in the court record books, that's all you're going to get. So you assume that they got their portion. If you look for the file papers, they have these little receipts generally that say, I received my portion from my father's estate, and they make their mark, and they sign their name, and it usually is the name that they're married under. Now, so this therefore, is, connecting generations. Now, this would be the same, then, for letters of administration. Just for people who don't know, a letter of administration is basically when somebody dies without a will. Mm-hmm. And yep. and typically, the letter itself just says who is assigned to be the administrator, and I think that's what Tracy is talking about here. Right, exactly. The intestate probate, uh, which the person died without leaving a will for whatever reason, but they have the heirs that would be the people getting the estate. And in the case of her, she may have got just the record book page, which would list them. But if you get to the file papers, and even not just the receipt signed by the kids getting their portion, you also get receipts for digging the grave, tolling the bell, whatever the case might be, any receipts that were applicable to be debited against the estate itself. Yeah. That's what you're going to find in there. It's great stuff. Well, the, the petitions for administration are fantastic because it does name everybody involved. And you get signatures on that and addresses. And I will tell you that a few years ago, when I first learned about that in New York, and of course, it's different everywhere. That's the thing you got to be aware of. Mm-hmm. When I got a hold of the petition for administration of my second great-grandmother's estate, it was signed by my great-grandmother. I'd never seen a signature of her before. And then when I found the petition for administration of my great-grandmother's estate, it had all of her three children listed there and one son who was from her first marriage. His name was James Moore. And in New York City, finding Mm -hmm. a James Moore is like finding John Smith. I mean, there are just a gazillion of them. And it gave his address and fortunately was right before a census year. So I was able to place him in a family. By the way, he married a girl named Moore. So that made it even (laughs) further complicated. But because 
of this, now I was able to follow his family, his occupation, get him over into New Jersey when he moved. And now I have a photo of his grave and I got his obituary because I was able to identify the right person because of this petition for administration. Well, you know, when I did air searching years ago, that would be the key document you'd want to find. I mean, it would be nice to list the will, but in the 19th and 20th century, those petition citation decrees listing the heirs at law often said, again, where they're living. There you go. So hopefully that answers your question, Tracy. And uh, David, continuing this conversation we just had about probate and petitions for administration and wills, I think there are a lot of things that are really hard to figure out sometimes. For instance, People who died without probate, you know, what is there what is there ultimately to find if they didn't have petitions for administration or a will? Well, my third great grandfather, Henry Poor, dies in eighteen fifty three. Doesn't have a will. So his widow stays on the house. She's on the state census of eighteen fifty five. She dies in eighteen fifty eight. She has no will, but there's a deed, and it's the estate of Henry and Martha Poor, and the grantor is selling it are all of their children and stepchildren. And that is the petition citation decree, but it's not through a probate. This real estate transaction is all I have for them. I don't know how many personal items he had or the trunks or pictures or whatever you might find in an inventory. He didn't leave that will. So sometimes you need to look at land records. And in case of your ancestry, I mean, a simple thing, the census. The 19th century census will usually tell you after 1850 whether they're in a house, if they're owning or renting. You'll find that in the later censuses and sometimes the cash value of the personal and real estate of the person. Right. And then if you've got that, then you know that there's probably something that's going to show the sale of those assets or the transfer, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, what if somebody dies and they leave it or their child takes over? And that's the case of my great-great-grandfather, who I couldn't find a birth record for for the longest time, still haven't. But I did find a deed for his father selling for love and affection to his son, the property that he held in Cumberland County, Nova Scotia. Ah. So that connected us back out of a different county completely. And then when my great-great-grandfather does this, he is still alive conveying it, and there is no will. So sometimes the conveyances are while the person is alive, and it'll say, you know, sold for a dollar or love and affection Mm -hmm. or given to my child or children. So the idea is he wants to distribute the stuff before he dies. And so really there's no reason for any record to exist. Exactly. And so we're talking about censuses of what, 1850, 1860, 1870, and maybe 80 to give us some Uh, clues? Right, exactly. Look at all of those censuses, and then you get into, you know, the owning and renting of the 1900, the 1910, the 20, depending how far down you have to go. Boy, there's so much when it comes to probate, isn't there? I mean, and when people die. It's like like an onion. It's like people think birth, marriage, and death. Okay. But then you have to peel the onion back a little bit more. Now you have probate, and you get deeds, and then you pull it back, and you get church records, and you get newspapers, and you get associations that they may have joined, the military records. So, you know, people think it's just cut and dry, birth, marriage, and death. No, there's more than just that dash in the gravestone, and there are so many records to be found, even if you're dealing with someone from the 17th century, let alone the 20th century. Wow. Yeah. And like I mentioned, you know, that petition for administration gave me a clue for something I'd been looking for for years. And it resulted in me finding my half great uncle and where he went and getting his obituary and where he died just because of that. 
Well, and that's true. And so you just never know what clue will turn up because obviously one clue leads to finding something else, as you had to do for your relative. You found that where he lived and then found the census. So it's a never-ending story, truly, is genealogy. It's Ask Us Anything, and if you have a question for us for this segment, all you have to do is email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. David, as always, great to talk to you. Catch you again next week. All right. See you later, my friend. We have come to the conclusion of another episode of Extreme Genes. Thanks once again for coming along for the ride. Thanks to our guests, Steve Anderson and Dan Debenham, of course, from Relative Race, because the show has started once again. Talk to you again next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.